short side of the virtual hardwood, it's the NLSC Podcast, episode number 318. Andrew with you once again, and this week, our 25th anniversary of NBA Live celebrations continue with yet another interview. This week, I'm joined by Andrew Jinx, who was a programmer on NBA Live from 95 through to 98. He had some great insights to share, more fun behind-the-scenes stories to tell, so here's our chat right after this snippet from an old-school NBA Live track. So as we continue our 25th anniversary of NBA Live celebrations, we have another developer interview today from the classic era of NBA Live. His name is Andrew Jinx, and Andrew, we welcome you to the NLC podcast. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for doing this. I've enjoyed the other podcasts, and hopefully mine can be as interesting. So uh, don't know if it's going to be as interesting as some of the uh, the reminiscing that's going on in a, in a big Facebook uh, group chat. Yeah, that group chat is getting crazy. There's just like, my notifications are flying by on my phone. <laughs> have to like take a, some time out of my day to catch up sometimes so had to uh had to mute it for eight hours so i could get some sleep uh, and i do thank you guys for <laughs> letting me uh crash the party it's uh it, it really is gonna have to be a book someday i think all those tremendous stories exactly yeah even a, there's some people there that could actually have their own book honestly <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to uh to chatting to uh more people from those early days but very glad to have you on the on the show today uh, so, just to start off, how did you, please let us know how you came to uh, to join EA Sports and, and, of course, the NBA Live Development Team. Yeah, so it actually was my first job out of college. I mean, I had done some co-op work terms, uh, so I'd worked at other places before, but this was like my first real permanent job. And it was, I saw a newspaper article and applied, and I basically wound up initially, what got me in was I had taken some Japanese language courses and had did, done uh, some co-op work terms in Japan. And they had a Japanese localization team. And that was actually my first my first job at EA was on the Japanese localization team. And it, and it wasn't that I was doing translations and it wasn't they expected me to be fluent, but they're like, hey, if you're converting this code over, actually knowing a little bit about Japanese is very helpful. Um, in this case, it actually was more, it wasn't just localization, it was actually more of porting of some games. So the Jap- Japanese market at the time had more like uh, set PCs, like like they were like Macs, uh, and we had targeted two of those platforms and we're putting some of our games on them. And the one the one game that I did was, uh, was World Tour Tennis here, and uh, they call it 4D Tennis in Japan because they te- Japan liked the, liked the 4D licensing. There was like 4D boxing and and it had some traction in Japan. So uh, I did, and, and they were, the, the, the computers were ironically being Japan a bit behind the times. So, uh, the, and, but the porting was a little bit easier. I think they've talked a little bit before. There was actually a good library even at that time. So a lot of what your porting was, was taking the library and they've already done a lot of the work to make it work on the other system. But then you know, there's a lot of tweaking. So one thing was that they had only 16 colors but double the resolution, and so they could kind of fake it out a bit to make the colors, but it just it wasn't as good, but that's sort of the porting that I did. 
cool. Next, I was, yeah. It's okay. uh, it's it's yeah, funny sorry. the uh, the forty forty boxing just takes me back. I remember that was that was on every demo CD. I think in the mid to late nineties. Yeah, exactly. That was their claim to fame. And actually, so I mean, this this actually started like EA Canada started out as a, a they they well it started out some guy made an Apple II game. John Matrick, actually, who's quite well known in the industry, he and a friend made an Apple II game in the summer called Evolution. And he parlayed that into, they started doing ports, and then he parlayed that into the sale to EA. Um, and, and it actually, even at that time, it was kind of weird. I was like, the electronic arts in Vancouver, it wasn't so common to have these brand names. And I had known about them because I had played some of their games, some of their Apple II games. And so it was like, okay, well, that's interesting. But I didn't really know what that meant, but I kind of recognized the brand. So that that was also something that was interesting. It was still a bit unusual at that time in Vancouver to have, you know, a California company. I knew they were California. I'm like, they're California, I think. Like, all that stuff didn't happen here, and that's true. It was sort of the first, like, one of the first branch branches of a, of a major California corporation doing software here. So it was kind of interesting as well. And I suppose these um, days it's become more commonplace. Obviously, they've just opened up uh, EA Madrid, which is going to be working on the, the new NBA Live games. So, I mean, these days, of course, with broadband and everything, uh, being able to communicate with different studios, not just across country or you know, between the same continent, but also across continents, across oceans, is, is much easier than it was uh, back in the days when, when, as Rod told us on his interview, that you had to uh, fly down master discs down to, the, down to California. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, there's an interesting story, too, where actually I got to fly down a demo for Computer Gaming World to San Francisco one time, uh, again, because there wasn't as easy to transfer stuff over and uh, and also a bit for security. And that was my job was to go do this demo. So I flew down and got to stay in a nice hotel and went to Computer Game World and handed them the disc and then hung out in San Francisco for the day and came back but there's a lot of i remember with the masters and stuff yeah you would you would fly down uh guys would be guarding them too because it was a security thing and then you would just fly someone down and they would take it to the the proofing plan there's often on very tight timelines because you know we were always trying to get the thanksgiving and if you could squeeze uh any time out of the process uh for duplication like they would have have everything ready to go and and you just had to make the disc and put them in the boxes and ship them out right it uh, it sounds a bit like uh, Ocean's Eleven, like an EA's Eleven situation with those master copies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they would send uh, those those trips weren't as fun. So it would often be a QA guy going down, um, and not to. I think it was like maybe the duplication plants were somewhere in Texas or something like that. It wasn't it wasn't interesting, but it was like useful. And then I think I think Rod's even told the stories that he said he. But yeah, sometimes you would actually be like, "Oh, we found a bug. Send another guy right? <laughs> <laughs> to try and make sure you get the the final." Okay, it's like, "Wait, yours isn't good. There's another guy coming." Right? It was kind of kind of funny. But like, there was just a lot of work going on. I remember we would the the document or the people that wrote the the docs would already have them done. Like everything was ready just to try and make the date, and we would be like the last thing to get it get done. It's the uh, the wild west of, of video game development, from the sounds of it. Yeah, well, I think it was also, so what I heard was that, like, the dream or what they actually executed on a lot of times was that you would have the box of the four EA Sports games in a giant, on a giant pallet that you would send to all the Costcos. So I think that would be, like, Madden, NHL, basketball, and uh, FIFA. 
And that's how you would sell tons of games. Like, so these pallets would just get dropped into Costco and the games would fly off the shelves if you got it there before Thanksgiving. If you got it there later, you're losing sales every week. If you get it there in January, you're you're not going to sell very much, right? So that was that was a lot of what drove the big push. Definitely. which is, It's funny, though. I believe NBA Live 96 came out... Uh... In, in January, I know as later, and I believe it's uh, past your time. But NBA Live 2001 PC came out in uh, in January as well. It was it, I might have to get someone else on there to uh, to give us some more insight into it. But as I as I understand it, there were people there was there were holdups with uh, not a big enough staff for the PC port, and it ended up getting pushed back uh, several months. And um, then, then of course NBA Live 2002 was console only. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's never as some people think that it's. The the company trying to screw over gamers or, or do something where often it's just a case of manpower, I suppose, or other circumstances that get in the way. It's uh, there's, there's a lot more to game development. I've said this on the other shows that uh, perhaps we don't understand. So it's good to to get insight into what actually goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, and and actually, I think I remember. I remember actually, I didn't remember that, but then I reading some of the things. Yes, we did release ninety five for the PC in January. So I don't know how well that sold, but I think it was just to get it like it didn't, we had something, I think they just wanted to get it out. I think that may have held up, been held up a bit because essentially the AI code was ported from the Genesis and and the Genesis was written in 68,000 machine language. So that took a while to get, uh, to get that stable. Like I think we had started early, but, but then if Genesis wasn't done, you know, we couldn't be done. Plus yes any changes to Genesis would then have to be reported over to the C code that we initially wrote for the, for all the AI engine. Uh, I even remember at the end, we had a, a crazy bug, a crazy memory stomping bug. Uh, and this was for 95, a crazy memory stomping bug that was like completely random. Every software would crash the game. It would also take out artwork. Um, you know, Rod did something really clever. Like he, put a checksum on all the artwork so he and he would constantly check the artwork oh this artwork's changed reload it to try and protect against it but eventually it's going to hit something that matters and it took us a long time to find that um eventually we did and it was and it was partly like you know porting from 68,000 machine language and you know you're going to make a mistake somewhere and that's what had happened right it's a uh... Programming just sounds like like a nightmare. Sometimes it's uh, very re- rewarding, obviously, when it comes together. I I did a little bit of, of software design in high school, way back in the uh, ancient days of two thousand one, a bit of uh, uh, JavaScript and, and so forth. And uh, nice. and uh, yes, my my project was a uh, supposed to be a, a, sh- a scrolling shooting gallery, one of those old old games. You just click the mouse on the targets as they fly past. It uh, it actually turned nice. out to be to be more of a, a scrolling picture gallery as the shoot function didn't work unfortunately. Uh, still got decent marks for proof of concept, but but yes, uh, sort of not something that would go gold. I think uh, it, it would definitely be sho- <laughs> definitely would be shovelware if nothing else. If it if it got it to see the light of day. Yeah, it's surprising. Like I like I look at games with a bit of a different eye, and I'm like, wow, that looks hard sometimes, right? Like you play something like today, like the falls. Although realizing too that you know unity engine and there's all this stuff they do for you now that makes it a bit simpler because like i also remember in nba live 95 we like for even for the mouse like rod did a lot to implement that you know it seems simple oh you just have a mouse cursor on your screen but we actually had to implement that to get a to get a ui that was more modern and there wasn't any uh code that would do that and drag and dropping we also had to implement all you know like where, where you pick up something and it and it 
draws itself properly until you let go of it. And, you know, that's all, you know, something that comes with your API now, but that was something that we all, at that time, there was nothing like that. And we had to just do it all. And Rod would often look at like, what is the Windows, what does Windows do to kind of figure out what we should do and how <laughs> should we make it yeah. look and as, as a standard? Because there was, it was all sort of new. Well, they certainly have uh, streamlined the process with the with the engines they have these days, and of course the the consoles, the current consoles have architectures very similar to a PC. So porting across mm. from the PS4 and X1 is, uh, as I'm told anyway, much easier than it used to be. Again, you know, going back to what you said, having to have the machine language and everything for, for Genesis, and then you've got your Super Nintendo and all its uh, all its chipset, and then across to PC, it's uh, yeah, making all those different versions. It's uh, it must have been uh, quite an adventure. Yeah, there's lots of lots of people worked really hard, and then but we shared like we could share a bit, and you could share assets a bit and art a bit. So I think like the first NBA Live '95 for the PC was mostly just a port. A lot of the assets were the same, and that was the only goal. And maybe that maybe it was just to put a stake in the ground to get it out there. We knew we could do better the next year because I I even I even noticed like it makes more sense that it came out in January because I sort of noticed that like I basically worked on four basketball games, but before I did that I did the Japanese localization and a few other things. I'm like, how did I have the time to release four basketball games? <laughs> and I was only there for five years total, right? So I was kind of like, but I think we did the, the 95 fairly quickly and released it off season. And then we synced up for the next one and the next two after that as well for 96 and then for 97 and 98 as well. Yeah, Live 95 PC is interesting because obviously the first PC release... Um of since i believe going back to the precursor series would have been uh, lakers versus celtics came out on pc dos uh, 95 was the first game that had current uh, pc version that is had current season rosters because it came out part, part of the way through the 95 season uh, so it had the clyde drexler trade to uh, houston things like that uh, before that all the nba live games and, and also the uh, nba playoffs and nba showdown etc had the previous season's rosters they were set in the current year but with the previous season's roster uh, so 90, 95 PC actually set that precedent of, okay, we're going to have the updated rosters. And from 96 onwards, uh, although the console versions of 96 uh, were affected by the, the lockout, the the, the, mm. the very, very brief lockout of, that cut down that off-season between 95, people forget about that lockout because it didn't actually uh, cost any games, but it did uh, take out part of the off-season, which is why the console versions don't have rookies, uh, among other things. Oh, uh, right. that, that's why they... they, they console versions have the expansion draft so you can put players on the uh new vancouver grizzlies and toronto raptors and also of course and we were talking about this before we started recording was of course the infamous uh hidden players in edit player the mm. first, very first creator player where you could punch in the names and uh and generate the uh <laughs> some of the missing players including a couple that weren't licensed yes yeah i and i remember programming that and i remember we're doing Michael Jordan and getting it to like, as soon as you see Michael Jordan, you just populate these stats, you pull these stats out of the code. Um, and we of course did it eventually did it for all of our names as well. And that like that, we got in a lot of trouble from the NBA. I remember they were actually almost threatening to take away our license and the producers like, okay, we can never, never do this again. Mm, right. They were yeah. extremely upset. And I, I think they may have found it after the fact, but, um, while it was already out there but yeah it was it was a serious thing like they and you kind of think oh well that's just like we didn't put the stats in the game it's just the player happens to want michael jordan the game we put that there no we own all the stats and michael jordan owns his stats and you know the stats are ours too it doesn't matter that we didn't put the name in you still also took the stats so 
which is kind of weird because they're kind of made up best guess stats that are in our gameplay. So I don't mm. know, but they were they were upset. Yeah, it's obviously been a huge thing over the years with players who can't be licensed, and even to today with NBA 2K and there's some of the historical players that you, if you have placeholders, you have to be so careful. You can't have you can't do the old-fashioned roster players where it was roster player 98, where it clearly was Michael Jordan just with a <laughs> slightly different face. Uh, it, it's less less need to do that now that every current player is in the game, obviously. But it's uh, whenever people ask me about that and say, why couldn't they just do this and why can't they just do that, I'm like, well. There's a precedent there that if you do that, it's the NBA really doesn't like it. And if you're using the NBA <laughs> license, you've got to really jump when the NBA says jump. And that's clearly, I mean, you, you wouldn't think these days with all the relationship with EA and 2K have with the NBA that they might pull the license. But back then, I, I guess it was, it was very, a very real threat that if they weren't happy with what you did, that uh, that could have been the end of NBA Live right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Producer was very, very concerned, but they didn't. And they let us continue on so that. That was good. But no longer could you type Michael Jordan. And you guys actually wound up doing that for us, which yeah. <laughs> we're actually quite excited about because there's nothing they can say about that, right? Can't pull your license. So it was good that, that, that we were actually kind of happy when we found out that there's actually these people that are able to put new roster guys in the game and fix some of the things that we couldn't fix. It was it was kind of cool, actually. It's Yeah, it's, it's something that we used to wonder about back in the day and, and perhaps some people still wonder about when it comes to 2K and the mods we do for the 2K now. But uh, but just how aware you guys were of uh, of us back in the day, and, and obviously the internet was uh, a smaller place back then. It was uh, you know, easier to find us in, in in some ways. I mean, I when I first got the internet, my family did back in 1997, uh, typing in NBA Live '96 into uh, Alta Vista, not Google, Alta Vista, and uh, <laughs> coming up with finding the NBA Live Series Center, the NLSC, and uh, which of course Tim Lutz and Brian were running at the time, and became one of my favorite sites, and eventually my the project that i work on to this day uh, yeah nice. but 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 finding those those mods uh, those early patches the roster updates and just you know i, I can create michael jordan and, and i can give him drafted information and all kinds of stuff that you can't with the in-game creator player it was uh, yeah it was incredible so it's it's really cool to hear that you guys uh, had, had the same experiences as i did i guess finding the, the site and seeing what was being done and just being so impressed with uh, with how it was being hacked and modern, how your work has been pulled apart and modified yeah, I mean, it was great. It was nothing affected us, and it just actually having people, you know, interested in the game add value for you, and, you know, why why would you be upset? So uh, what else did you work on in those uh, early days of uh, NBA Live? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, so yeah, I also did the, the pre-DBF converter, so we I think you talked with Darren Schuler about Darren's like, hey, guys, why aren't we using databases? I mean, that was one of the great things about Darren. Uh, well, one, he, ha- he actually had some other experience. You know, I was fresh out of college, and he's like, hey, guys, databases. And everybody's all skeptical, but actually it was exactly the right thing to do. But before that, I basically wrote something that took a CSV file and just spewed out a, a, C, a C code file that would get pulled into the game, which probably also caused you guys some problems because it would have then been compiled into the game and who knows what the compiler does for optimization, like it may have joined names together or that were the same to optimize and reduce space, but it would have munged a whole bunch of stuff, which probably would have caused you guys problems. But it was, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you want to put it in its best light, it was a minimal viable product. We got, you know, they said, hey, we don't want to have to edit your C code, like the designers like Dave Warfield and stuff. 
uh, can you just do something that would take a CSP file and make your C code? And so I'm like, oh, okay. And and I did. And, and we used that for at least NBA Live 95 until, until Darren came along. Uh, um, yeah, the, those early days uh, editing the rosters in, in 95 uh, and, and 96, 97 involved having to edit that XC file directly and create a patch file that we could have then apply to... Uh, to the net, to the end user and also modifying that uh, roster dat file where all the, so the data was stored the original data in the XC and then the roster dat would be the trades and and any created players once that came along mm. uh, yeah so and and of course ninety five PC it, at, with the way it was compiled yes if if you had to if you changed one string it would change it for all the players so you'd be very careful about which which ones you changed and then ninety six onwards it was a bit more forgiving um, and then of course the, the databases came along and it was just <laughs> just a breeze after that. I've also worked on the, the the first schedule creation where it's like generate a fixed schedule. So I, I worked on that as well, um, where you just put together eighty two game an eighty two game season that's kind of ran, random and generated on the fly. I remember doing that um, and adding in the day and night scenes. Like, well, sort of picking, trying to pick and make there be a- afternoon games and evening games, sort of a similar amount to when to a regular season, and then also at, you know adding the day and night as you played the games, uh, scenes of from the city, we've added though. I don't remember when we added those, if that was right in 95 or not, or we added the day and we had just one, one picture and then we added day and night later. Um, 90, interesting. Early yeah. On, yeah. Interesting though, early on, like I, I'm not sure how long it lasted. It might've been 95 and 96, but we had to do a lot of palette management. So I don't know if you know palettes, but you know, nowadays you can just say, Oh, well, here's a, Here's a this pixel I want this color. Well, you do that too, except you only were allowed to have 256 colors. You could have a large range of colors in that palette, each one, but only 256 of them. So that would mean things like the background screens for the for the city shots would take. We had like an 80 co- 80 color section reserved for them, which would also be why they didn't look so great. Um, for the logos, it was even trickier because you had to have three. I think we did three 16 color rows for for each of the team logos because you had to have one one extra one when you're doing the exhibition game screen and you're scrolling through the logos on one of them. You, if you show the logo before you've changed the palette, it'll look wonky. And if you show the logo, then change the palette later, or if you change the palette, then show the logo, the old logo will look wonky. So you had to actually have and so you had to do a lot of management as you were scrolling through. It was swapping out which set of 16 colors they would use for the logos, the and and doing that continually. So there's lots of technically, and I don't know if that's if that makes any sense or that's interesting, but oh yeah, stuff yeah. like that that we had to, yeah. And so so we, and then the buttons would had had another section of the palette, and you had to be very careful with these 256, 256 colors to manage that everything still looked right and didn't get the wrong colors. It's, it really explains why it was so hard to make art updates for those old games. We, we did The guys did make the EA graphics editor, EAGE, which has allowed us to basically edit pretty much every live from 95 through to uh, the last release, 08. But yes, try, trying to edit those some of those logo files and everything in the early games, you'd open it up in the, uh, uh, in the EA graph, and um, yeah, the colors would be off. So I guess it was, it was all, all down to that... Uh, uh, manipulation of, of the palette actually did there is also we found that the palette files for the jerseys in those old games and, and some of us actually found out how to change that palette and basically update the jerseys even though they weren't textures back then they were just the different colors and, and the lines and uh, yeah some people actually found out how to change those palettes and that was so that was kind of cool 
Yeah, because you didn't have in, in future games you would have the color information would all be in the file. In this mm. case, you just have an index into something, the palette that would tell you what the real color was. Otherwise, it was just a number that was the location in the palette, right? And then also for transparency, like the two, color two fifty five would be reserved would be reserved, and if you saw that, you wouldn't draw it in our libraries and stuff like that as well. There was tricks like that to get transparency, so the logos could be placed over stuff that's how we did transparency then though at some point you get with with you know six or the 24-bit color or 32-bit color the extra eight bits over 24-bit color are how transparent or translucent something a pixel should be and it got easier right but in the early days it was very very uh lower low level that definitely explains a lot a lot of uh, a lot of uh, hackery going on to uh to make everything as it was as you wanted it to be and how you envisioned it and uh of course, having to work with the artists to to implement that vision. Yeah, exactly. And then the artists had a huge input, right? Well, it was there was lots of was a lot of collaboration. It was really interesting to I, I enjoyed the collaboration with artists, but it's two like two things that don't necessarily go together, right? You've got programmers are generally pretty buttoned down and straight laced, and artists are kind of like a little bit more free thinking. So, figuring out how to collaborate and how to work together to make make a product was uh, was good and there's lots of give and take and it. it was generally a positive experience for me i don't know if the artists would say the same thing but but uh but you know they're just so creative and 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 came up with great looks and ideas and 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 that sort of stuff but uh you know I mentioned nba live 96 before as well it, it is one of my all-time favorites so it, it's the first game i owned on pc i actually went back and bought 95 pc uh, a little bit after that when I found a copy of it. I, I played 95 on Super Nintendo first, but then 96 was my first PC release, and I, I, I just love the aesthetics of that game. You know, we're talking about the UI and everything, just that all the go- the glinting gold everywhere, the, the ticket coming out of the uh, out of the slot on the, on the, on the, on the main menu. Uh, and and men- you mentioned, of course, the, the dragging and dropping, and of course that was how you rearranged the rosters in, in the, in the team, team roster screens. And, and just hearing about what went into that uh, really makes me appreciate those details even more just knowing how difficult it was to be able to click on that the position numbers or the x for the inactive roster and just dragging and dropping and making it look good like that it's uh they have a really uh distinct aesthetic those those early nba live games with with the menus and it was uh yeah really cool yeah i think did did i mention also like if we did i did also worked on the first controller screen so that was where you had the i think it was two joysticks a mouse and keyboard Yep. And the way that you would just drop, drag and drop those from side from one side to the other, you could quickly set up. That, for some reason, took a lot of iterations. I remember I think Tarni did the original design, and then we worked together. Once I implemented it, then there was some changes, and the, that went on for a bit. Very common in software development, but um, yeah, that was kind of fun to do too. Once it was working really smoothly, it's like wow, it's like so easy to get. You know, you play up to four players and use whatever controls you want on whatever team, and it was it was really really easy and looked good i was i was kind of proud of that at the end when it was done but but basketball gaming with a mouse that was very interesting i tried back in the day i think the only other game that, that did that was funnily enough another ea game was michael jordan in flight that came out in 93 for the as a pc exclusive um, yeah that, that that is very interesting using a mouse using the two buttons on the mouse and the and the movement to control it's uh takes some skill that one yeah, I was surprised that they that, that they did it and it worked. I think I like tried it once. I, I mean, I was mostly on the UI, so I, you know, if you tell me that you can use a mouse, then I will t- tell you that the mouse is being used and uh, how it worked. I didn't have to implement right. It was more <laughs> the UI thing. So, 
And uh, you mentioned before we started recording that you implemented one of my favorite little uh, little flourishes on the on this night's matchup screen the uh, the ball coming out of the tip off button. Yeah, the ball. Yeah, that was really cool. I actually I actually implemented it wrong at first too. As I actually learned a little lesson about animations because we didn't at that time do too many animations, and I was still relatively new to video games. And the first time I did it, I actually just drew it like I didn't do the didn't draw the animation in between like. What what they would do in those games is they would have a game clock and then an AI clock, and and you would keep them separate because if you just did things when the AI changed, you wouldn't. So you're constantly you're drawing at a set rate, and then you know maybe your your AI runs at a different rate. In this case, the calculation for where the ball should be ran at a different rate, and I would I did it and it was very choppy. It would just sort of draw the ball and then draw it further along and draw it further along and. I got some advice from Amory that's like, no, 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 here's what you do, and you should be drawing this continually and keep them separate, and that was kind of a good learning experience. And then you get that nice smooth ball that goes up and down really smoothly instead of really choppy. So my first crack at it wasn't so great, and then after that, but it actually I enjoyed it. Every time you press it, see the button pop out, it was kind of cool. And uh, small, even, small. even even if you uh, cl- click the right mouse button, that's how that was that was all the thing on the the cheat sites and the tips and tricks sections of the sites back in the day. If you click the right mouse button, it'll skip all the starting alarm screens and go straight to the tip off as well. Um, even even if, even if you right click it, it uh, shoots up that ball and it's uh, yeah. As I say, it's, it's very well animated. I I've always enjoyed that in the old games, and it's uh, obviously a learning experience about uh, not just programming but but animation. That having to do those interstitial uh, poses and, and animations is. Uh, uh, so critical yeah exactly well they took it from looking really choppy to looking really nice so it was kind of really smooth anyway it's kind of nice yeah so there's actually i have an interesting story too about about right clicking so rod added there's an easter egg that rod added i don't i don't think anyone i don't think he talked about it but basically if you right clicked in the area of a player's nose on the portrait screens he would make a honking sound, a couple of different honking sounds. It would go honk. <laughs> and he kind of slipped in there to see if anyone noticed, thinking that no one would ever right-click on the UI. Everybody, you know, left-clicks, right? And, of course, our producer found it, like, about a day later and was, like, thought it was hilarious, but he's like, but we can't do that. <laughs> he like, laughing while he was telling us, but, like, he's like, it's kind of like making fun of people. It's yeah. really funny, but we can't do that. <laughs> So it was too bad. We were, we were hoping it would stand for a while longer, but but that was a good a good Easter egg. I was going to say I was I'll have to go and check that out, but obviously didn't make the the final version. Um, yeah, no. you, you you wouldn't think of people doing that. Why would you right click on on players' noses in in the portraits? You know why would you? And yet in testing it has, and it's it's funny. And, and Rod told the story about putting the uh, for NBA Live '98 when you'd back out of the main menu when it would come up with. Uh, the pictures of the cheerleaders, of course, and, and how people found that uh, that straight away, and it's it, it really uh, I really enjoyed that because I know talking to other gamers that so many of us in the in the day did back out until we got our favorite picture, and you know <laughs> teenage boys that we were uh, until we got our favorite cheerleaders picture, and then finally okay we can quit the game on this screen. You know it's it's uh, it's it's one of those weird uh, quirks that that we have as gamers that we kind of have the yeah just all tapping along to the doing something along to the rhythm of the uh, of music or something in a platformer or uh, or you know we having to quit the game in just the right way uh, as though that would <laughs> as though that would maybe give us more luck on the virtual hardwood next time we booted up the game or something but no it was just uh, yeah funny stuff 
Yeah, like Sheldon's three door knocks or something like that. Yes. Big bang three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very much these rituals uh, yeah, to, to the level of, uh, of OCD or whatever. It's um, Yeah, but uh, it, it's always uh, cool to hear those, uh, those stories and what went into the game. And and obviously, yes, the, the NBA was very particular about what went into the game, so you would have to be careful about what you put in. And uh, the, the uh, developer teams stuck around for a while. Though. Two were out live 99, I believe. Sorry, which development teams? The... Oh, sorry, the, uh, the the unlockable developer teams that we could punch in and we get to play with you oh, guys. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 they were there up until I left and my last one was 98, right? So I think, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember actually a few times I would enter in my name and actually assign all the players to be me. And they actually even recorded like the announcer stuff, which I think we added at some point as well. And so it'd be like, Andrew Jinx passes to Andrew Jinx, Andrew Jinx for three. And that entertained me periodically <laughs> to do that. So I'm sure other people on the developer team did it as well. But yeah, you could actually have your player there that would actually get announced with this name, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's something I've talked about in Wayback Wednesday on the site before and uh, talked about with a couple of the guys on the on previous podcasts. Uh, yeah, 99 was the last one they had it. After that, they were doing the Legends teams and everything. So that's kind of took up space in the database instead <laughs> we're kind of going for the uh, historical content there uh went through some of the nicknames obviously with uh with um with darren in a previous episode episode 316 and uh mm-hmm. y- yes some very interesting names there of course uh you know Lila's feeder for the fearless leader for for rod and uh, uh bigfoot for for darren and uh yours as we noted on that show was uh was hurt me yes that's true so there is a great story about that. I think I think you heard a little bit about Dom in Darren's interview as being kind of legendary yep. and very good. Um, I'll sort of explain uh, one snippet. I think on the chats, it was Brian that was doing this, but I, wa- I was watching Dom play Command & Conquer one evening. We would actually do a fair bit of game playing in the evening sometimes, like you're there, blow off a bit of steam. You're there anyway. And... Uh, in Command and Conquer, he got someone, the co- it turns out to be the, our co-op, to build a grid of silos in the game so that he could drop a nuke on it and then make sure he memorized the blast pattern. Like That's sort of the level of thing that he would go to in things and, and get really good. So I, we played a lot of Descent, and I think also in the chat, Rod sort of tells a story about how it was the guy who was working on the port of the 68,000 machine language to see I think he, we didn't have as much to do until he was done. And he like sent a chair flying and hit the side of my cube while Dom and I were playing Descent. And I didn't notice, I just kept playing. But it was during one of these Descent games that on one level, Dom got into a really good position. Like he's really good anyway. I I mean, I'm not sure if I was competitive, but I, uh, you know, in this particular situation, it was almost a no-win situation. He was down a really long hallway, there was a weapon spawn there for, I think it was called the Mega Bomb, and a tight corridor leading to it. And every time I tried to get down the tight corridor, I was getting just nailed by this super bomb. And it would spawn, by the time I spawned, came back and came down the corridor, I would get killed again. I was like, about to quit. And instead, I just changed my name to hurt me and kept playing. So <laughs> just like, okay, I'm just going to keep going. You can hurt me. But I'm going to try and get through this, try and get you. Uh, I can't remember if I got him eventually or not, or he got bored of being in that nice position or, or whatever. But we would play, play, play a lot, play, do a lot of play like that. 
It's, uh, it's, apparently, it's great that, um, sorry, it, it's great that, you know, th- yeah. that story that's only being told now over 20 years later is, uh, is something that was just never explained in the, in the nickname, because you could open up those profiles when, when you, when we unlocked you guys yeah. in the team and you would see all the nicknames of Bigfoot and the Borg and, and Bryski and Hurt Me and everything. And, and just, uh, yeah, <laughs> just seeing some of them. Okay. That's, uh, now we know the origin story. It was very cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think he actually would try and get people to play him in Descent, and he even said he'd only use flares, and flares are like your default weapon that does almost like not any damage. I remember, and yeah. He would still manage to he would still manage to kill new people with them, and they wouldn't ever see him. So he was again his that's his Borg makes a lot of sense. He kind of was a bit of a Borg, <laughs> you know, relentless and resistance was futile kind of vibe. So it's a and I, guess, I, guess, I guess how you break up the monotony of, uh, of of working on games is to actually jump on there with some multiplayer and and, and uh, not just the basketball, of course, that you're working on, but actually playing uh, playing other games just to break things up and uh, have a change of pace. Yeah, and then it was like probably wouldn't do that while we were finaling, but then after finaling, you kind of have to be there, but maybe you don't have anything to do. We do it then. Although when you're in the midst, we would do like I think we did like five to six o'clock every day. We would do uh, quake. Uh, Quake Capture the Flag, a bunch of those mods as well. We would just have a pickup game, and it was just a sort of way to, to blow off some steam and have some fun. And it would be it would be QA and Dev, and it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you sort of had had to do some of these things to to make your life a little bit more enjoyable. Certainly, you know, the, the long hours that are involved in game design, it would have to be uh, yeah something to break up that monotony for sure. Uh, something I, I skimmed over, and, and we touched on it with. Uh, with Darren in his interview is that he mentioned that he wasn't a, a really big basketball guy coming into the uh, into working on NBA Live. Uh, what's your background with basketball and being a fan, if at all? Yeah, I'm probably my sentiments are more aligned with Darren. Uh, not wasn't really a basketball fan coming in. They did some nice things, though, like like the like to kind of ramp us up. It was, I mean, the getting the basketball license. There was a there. It was basically like. A producer came up from California. I, I was on a game that got canceled, um, which is another interesting story. It was it was going to be a another localization port for this game that was based on, like, if you know that Gary Gaiax did Dungeons & Dragons, then he got the company taken away from him. Then he did something called Dangerous Dimensions, which was, had because it had two Ds, it made him change it to Dangerous Journeys. The whole company at, at that time was working on on doing this game on a bunch of different platforms, some of which didn't make sense, and had gotten $2 million from a company called JVC in Japan to do this. And uh, and basically, I was working on that port, which then it got cancelled because there was a bit of the, the licensing issues and stuff like that, and kind of was actually sitting with not much to do and wound up getting put on the team as as this producer came up from California to figure out what we were going to do as this new team. That was the idea that that was what, what was the creation of Hitman studios. And it was even like, we didn't have the license, the basketball license at that time. It was actually a bit of an open, uh, let's figure out what to do. The, the new producer gave like a bunch of talks. Uh, that's Sam Nelson would talks. His thing was like, you know, you want to make a game, think about what people that are sitting in traffic are thinking about doing, that they like to do when they, you know, then not be in traffic, right? What do they think about when they're sitting in traffic? That was sort of his advice, and we were trying to figure out what games we could play, what games we could make. Um, I wound up working for a while on 
they wanted the the they wanted to make a Sonic the Hedgehog killer, and we were working on do, doing a Sinbad themed side-scrolling platformer. Uh, and we had done some art treatments, like we had trying we were trying some different art treatments, like a posable puppet that you took pictures of, or actual artwork that you scanned in, and and then we got the basketball license and we started doing the basketball and and that's sort of how it came about. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, and it was just kind of like, okay, now you're doing basketball, but they, they were kind of like, it's okay. Okay. Well, we know a lot of people don't know about basketball. Like, you know, Van, we, we Vancouver only briefly had a basketball team and it was after we started. So mm. they, they actually wound up taking us down to Seattle to, uh, to go see a Sonics game when the Seattle had the Sonics. And so like one day at work, a bus pulled up and we got in and we wound up going down to Seattle. We got, paid for a meal and we got to go see a sonics game that was actually sort of the start of seeing uh you know seeing a real basketball game when, when you no one had seen one before or very few people had seen it uh, we also collaborated with the sfu to learn a bunch of stuff um and they did a lot of our 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 helped with uh, rankings and ratings and stuff like that so we were kind of bootstrapping um i i wasn't a sports fan at the time i did go to some grizzly games and get some free tickets and i could kind of appreciate it but but not not uh into it but there wasn't a lot of people that were into it either and it's funny considering how how much how enjoyable those basketball games were to, to those of us who were into basketball and are into basketball <laughs> that they turned out obviously you, you collaborated with those minds uh uh, Jay Triano is one, obviously, who yeah. Uh, yeah, who got credited and, uh, and later, of course, became an NBA coach and kind of kind of has a a cameo in those early games by way of the credits, of course, as a as a contributor, and then later appearing in NBA Live uh, when he was a coach on the sidelines. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of a funny early cameo for him. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting how we just like went from nothing, not even a basketball town, and we uh, we somehow managed to figure out how to make good basketball games. Um, you know, it, I. Yeah, I, I did the UI, so it's it's mostly like you know just here's the set of logos that you need to display for the exhibition game. It wasn't it wasn't like I needed to know a lot, um, and it was all I did learn a lot. Like it's like now I know all the basketball teams, right? Yeah, and their logos and stuff like that. And I didn't mind it, but I, I wasn't a huge. I'm not. I wasn't ever a huge sports guy. I mean, we have like our local hockey team, and every so often they they make a run for the Stanley Cup, but. The, they almost always fail and it's pretty painful so sometimes i've crawled onto the bandwagon and then been forcibly ejected and like yeah it's uh yeah. Nah, sports you know it uh, it's yeah it is uh, funny to hear that again because a lot of people uh, my age who were just getting into basketball at that time also ended up learning about basketball through video games you know playing nba jam or the you know, games of nba live and seeing the learning all the plays that were included, et cetera, and then seeing them on TV, because you, you wouldn't necessarily see as much on TV as you do now, especially here in Australia, if you didn't, at least if you didn't have pay TV. So it's it's interesting that, yeah, you, that you were learning about basketball as you were making the game, and then as we were playing the game, we were it was teaching us about certain players and, and teams as well. Yeah, and I think I think we had started, like, I, I don't remember the exact sequence of events, but I know that that I think there was some very passionate about soccer that made FIFA that was sort of, and I don't know if we had made a hockey up until that point, which would have been surprising. But we also we basically became, you know, the EA Sports Center after, you know, a couple years after '95, where we were doing NHL and we were doing. Well, we were also always we were also doing Madden at that time as well, mm. which was a big EA Sports franchise. And there was there was actually a very uh, a significant event where there was a team up here working on the next Madden, but unbeknownst to them, there was actually also a second team in California that was working on the same Madden. And at one point they decided to 
they actually told the team up here, you know what, we like the direction that this one's taking more and we didn't tell you, but you can stop working on it now. And the team was quite upset about that, right? So we were already yeah. kind of doing some sports games. There was someone that, and I don't know if that, there was someone passionate and did FIFA. And FIFA did that sort of three quarters view thing. So one of the ideas early on was like, well, why don't we do that? I think it's called three quarters view, just where you're kind of going at the, you're up above the court at an angle. and going Isometric, sort of, yeah. Yeah, sideways. You know, you're not straight above and you're you're kind of off to the side, but then also at a bit of an angle. Yep. And it was like, well, if we do that with basketball, we kind of, that can be our first, that's our first big idea to have a take on a basketball game. We already have FIFA that's doing it and it's very successful. And so that was sort of the first direction we took in making the games. So did you end up working on much gameplay or were you strictly uh, AI, a uh, UI rather, UI? Yeah. Almost strictly UI because it was it was sort of this sixty eight thousand port and there was not as many people that knew about it. I think I, I think I took a brief foray into it, maybe to try and do the instant replay, and I was very scared afterwards oh. <laughs> of going to the gameplay code. It was very it was very a bit Byzantine and hard to understand. So you, you mentioned um, uh, games that that got cancelled, obviously, and. and is something that happens uh, even to this day with uh, a couple of cancellations of NBA Live, and it's uh, something that does, does, does happen with video games, obviously, uh, with, with budgetary reasons or whatever. Uh, something that you mentioned when I reached out to you was that at one point you were looking to do a, a 3DO port of, uh, was it NBA Live 96? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure, yeah, I'm not sure where the timing lines up or if we started to, I, I remember, so I had a 3DO kit too, because that Sinbad side-scroller was gonna be a 3do game and so the reason for the reason for that like trip trip hawkins was the was either chairman of the board or ceo of e electronic arts and he also started the 3do company and he was at some point trying to convince ea to actually full its th throw its full weight behind the 3do platform and do all the games exclusively for that platform um which then others thought was a mistake EA sort of mantra is like, we'll make games for any console that's profitable. And to, for us to support one console puts all our eggs in one basket. We don't think it's the best thing for the company. And it's kind of like chicken and egg. Like, you know, if if the 3DO console actually had all these games for it, maybe it would have been more successful, although it was kind of expensive for the time. But then briefly, as part of that, we had a basketball running on the 3DO, I believe. And I believe someone walked by my cube and and for the first time were kind of taken aback and said they thought I was watching basketball on television, but it was really just the 3DO running it. I remember that a bit, but eventually that became the PC game also started to look like you could be, a, you could be watching a basketball game on television as well. Yeah. But yeah, so I think, I think we briefly had it on the 3DO, but it never really got close to release. It was just a concept. Um, and, but at one point EA was about, was going to throw its full weight behind the 3DO console and then that got stopped. Probably for the best, since it was also uh, discontinued in January '96. The uh, the 3DO, so it's uh, uh, I, I guess now a collectible. But that that would have been interesting to see, and, and you know whether having those uh, big you know what, what are now called AAA releases uh, on on the console, whether it would have saved saved as you say. It's uh, it's something I guess we'll never know. But that is interesting to hear that there was uh, another version because, as you said, uh, they you were looking to put out NBA Live and, and other sports games and titles on. Uh, Pretty much everything you could. I think there was even a, a, I believe, a Game Boy version of '96, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. And 
uh, Game Boy was oh, not, awesome. ne- not not necessarily the ideal platform for uh, for sports, but back in the day, whatever you could play on the go was kind of a novelty in and of itself. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we did that at EA Canada, so that might have been might have been done by i i, I don't even, i actually want to go look at that and see what it looks like now that's interesting it's, uh, I've, I've never seen it yeah, but, I, I didn't i didn't own a game boy back in the day so well i'd like i'd like to see it as well i need to look up the, what kind of footage what kind of uh you know it looks like on that little uh black and white or green and, and black screen as it is it uh yeah it's so obviously, you know, lots of great stories about the the games, and it's uh, great to get those insights into the, those old days of uh, NBA Live, the, the classic years of, uh, of it becoming the the game, the basketball game back in the day. And both uh, both Rod and Darren have shared some pretty interesting stories of what's happened behind the scenes. As I said, there's a uh, a great party going on in a, in a group chat on Facebook. I know that uh, <laughs> so many people reminiscing. Uh, so yeah, I'll obviously give you the the floor to uh, to tell some stories and. Uh, or offer rebuttals, as the case may be. It may, maybe who gets the last word, depending on depending on which order I talk to everyone, who gets the last word on what happened behind the scenes. But uh, obviously a lot of fun going on. You know, you talked about the multiplayer gaming with Descent and Quake and, and so forth. But uh, practical jokes, obviously, and other other things happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the, the jock steel is kind of the quintessential joke. Um, and, you know, like Darren sort of portrayed it that he... Uh, he was the new guy, and that's why it happened. But there was also the fact that every time he came by, we did our, our, our daily meeting by Cindy's Cube. Every time that we had that meeting, he would mention it since she had pinned it up. And it was kind of weird, but I wasn't going to say anything about it. But every day he would say something about it. And, you know, it was kind of like not super surprising that, you know, if someone's going to get picked to have their face put on, the, you know, the the... And when he says burlesque, he really means stripper, <laughs> stripper's body. It's going to be him. So uh, <laughs> we, we did. Yeah. And, and he couldn't understand why we found that funny. And I think we were talking about it. We're like, how could he not understand how funny that was? But apologies if it was because he seemed like he enjoyed it at the time. But other things he said that maybe he didn't. So apologies if you didn't enjoy it. But but um, but that was that was an ep- I, and I was there for when he first saw it, too. I, I remember that. <laughs> That morning, I don't know if I had even, I don't think I had even noticed, like, Cindy, the artist, had just quietly swapped in this thing, and she just slightly changed it. It was like, Jack Steele is the real name, and she changed it to Jock Steele, and then just superimposed uh, Darren's face on, on his body, and it was exactly the same pinup that she had before, and uh, she just quietly did it, and I didn't even notice, and then all of a sudden, we're in the meeting, and Darren's like, whoa, 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 <laughs> and... I didn't even know why. And I looked close. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awesome, <laughs> right? So, so that, that was my recollection of, of that of that event. And uh, yeah, that we probably maybe took it too far over the over the course of the next few years. But it was it was a funny time. I can only hope that uh, these podcasts, as I talk to more of you guys, uh, turns into the, the full history, like the Ken Burns baseball version. You know, our, our version of Ken Burns, you know, baseball civil war. You know, our version of uh, you know. Jock Steele, the, the true definitive history of this uh, this prank comes out over a course of multiple episodes. Yeah, it was it was a good prank, and and also super like the other thing that made it good. It was like, you know, Cindy was super quiet and seemed very straight laced, and it was actually kind of weird that she she put up this pinup of a of a stripper of a show that she went to. Like it was it was kind of it seemed out of character, and then like even more out of character that she would pull this you know, completely out of the blue plant prank with complete subtlety. Like, no, like she didn't say a single word. And then all of a sudden 
like so it was just on a lot of those levels just you know unexpected and 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 surprising and then that's what almost made it better as well right this quiet little artist who doesn't do much all of a sudden does this like out of the blue hilarious prank it it sort of gave it more legs as well i i agree it's it's when it comes from somebody you don't expect that that witty quip just popping out of nowhere or or that or that joke that it's uh it's, it's sometimes even funnier than the person who can do the rapid fire comedy because you just don't expect it and to, to just suddenly lay it in there so that it would just appear and just be just be discovered it, it's yeah it, it was yeah. it was epic right and she just had this sweet little smile she didn't really even say much about it <laughs> just like it was hilarious so that's, uh, that's awesome so did you uh partake in any pranks or were you the the victim of any uh <laughs> any cruel you know quote-unquote cruel uh, jokes back in the day yeah, did I did I get pranked that much? I think I mean like so. It, some other pranks I saw, not necessarily artists on the NBA team, but they would they would draw cartoon characters of themselves, sometimes in like compromising positions, and they'd leave them on the whiteboards for quite <laughs> around. Uh, you know, compromised missions of one artist doing things to another artist that nobody should do. Uh, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, there's that. And one time, one of the artists drew me. And, uh, and, you know, a caricature of me on my whiteboard. And so it's like, you know, it's kind of maybe funny, but it's kind of funny too. Um, another prank, though, was kind of, it's kind of weird. It was, for some reason, there's this one fairly overweight artist who, when he was explaining things on video camera, would took his shirt completely off. Like, he was shirtless. And, and he, I don't remember his reason. He was like oh, well, nobody likes to see shirt sleeves when your arm's in there on a video. Like, he wasn't on the video, but he was off the video. No one wants to see shirt sleeves. It's better if you don't have shirt sleeves. And he was just kind of like, well, I'll just take my shirt off, and then I won't have a shirt sleeve, and he's explaining things. All of a sudden, over the PA announcement, you hear this, donuts in this conference room, the conference room where the guy had his shirt off, and so everybody, of course, rushes off over there because it's like chum for developers is any kind of free food. And yeah. It's mostly just he mostly just did it because the guy's there with his shirt off, <laughs> and I was and the guy's like, yeah, yeah, really funny, and he just continues, you know, explaining on the whiteboard whatever he was explaining. I like that logic. And, N- nobody likes shirt sleeves. It's uh, that's a uh, that's. I don't know why he did it. Yeah. Like he had some explanation, but he like yeah, just took his shirt off in a me- in a meeting room, and then someone put an announcement over to send send people over. <laughs> so weren't even donuts at the end of the day. There weren't any donuts. There was just shirtless Scott, and that was you know, a little bit terrifying. But that, that that's just a cruel joke on everybody. Then that's uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was uh... it was funny. Uh... Yeah, well, obviously, you know, obviously you were there for, uh, for for a few years, so you would have uh... <laughs> been, these shenanigans would have been going on. I guess pretty much from the the time you got there to uh, you know is is that I mean the the result of, of developers. Uh, just the the developer culture, or, or just sort of being a, a bunch of, uh, of of young uh, up and coming uh, go getters in the in the business, uh, you know, trying to make the most of this uh, stressful situation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think some of it we were making it up as we went along. There was it was like you know, software the software industry in Vancouver was not as developed as it is now. It was and people were sort of learning, and it, it was like you know, well, if you have to be there all the time, you might want to have you might want to have at least a little bit of fun. Sure. Um, and uh, well, again, some of it now would be huge HR violations. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, you would get in a lot of a lot of trouble. But that time, it was a little bit more. And it was kind of funny because the the HR lady was really serious, but there's still a lot of 
a lot of these shenanigans going on and no one sort of said anything and you're all kind of just a bunch of young guys and you know you don't know too much about what working in an office is like so you kind of make it up but um you know i'd, I'd worked previously in a wasn't even a, a government office but it was like you know that you had to wear a shirt and tie every day and you had to like actually they had a rule mustaches but no beards like all those sort of dress codes and stuff like that and maybe it was a little bit of like we don't need to be like those guys we can kind of do whatever we want and make our own rules a little bit maybe that comes a little bit from the hacker culture as well right you know yeah all these suits are for show but you don't need those things to do good cool things and and we're going to prove it and we're going to be a bit crazy um all those yeah. uh those dot-com startups back in the turn of the uh, millennium where they, they all had the foosball tables and everything that the office of the future kind of thing yeah, we had an arcade as well, actually, which was really nice. That included an NBA Jam video game, uh, Steel Talons game, a few other ones I don't remember. We so we, you know, another way to learn about about basketball. They brought in that game, and we we spent a bit of time. We could go down for breaks and play on in in the the arcade there and stuff like that. It was kind of fun. So I visited the EA Canada campus uh, two thousand six and two thousand eight, which was uh, past your time working there, uh, I believe. Um, it it was a pretty impressive setup and a very very cool campus. Actually, when when I got there, they had the the outdoor uh, soccer pitches and outdoor basketball courts and nice. indoor basketball court and gym. Uh, guessing those facilities weren't uh, weren't in place at the time. Yeah, no. So the the original office that I spent all my time working in, I think I was there for the first footing of the new building, was a little just a little bit south, maybe like a, a kilometer south in a in an old more standard office building, and. Uh, we started on just like one and a half floors of that building when I started there. So, and then we expanded into the two floors and then we actually wound up taking over the whole building and had another building for QA, sort of a, another like five minute drive away as well before they got into the new building. So it was constantly getting bigger. We restarted the point, right? Like there was a point early on where it's actually kind of knew everybody's name. Like they say it's about 150 people. And then we expanded beyond that, you know, fairly rapidly. Um, so I never worked in that nice building. I did work across the street from that really nice building. And I, I think I got to visit it like once there was some rule that you needed. If you're an ex employee, you needed a management approval or escort or something. So I just, I heard that and I'm like, <laughs> any, you know, whatever I, I, and working across the way, I actually went for lunch with the old NBA guys quite a few times over the over the years as well. I'd just wait at the driveway, and they would pick me up on their way to lunch, and we'd just go to the local food courts and stuff. So, um, but yeah, they had still had, I mean, even in the office building, they still had nice stuff. They had a really nice room with a really nice projections. I think we did, like, um, you know, watch Deep Space Nine on the nights that it came out when we were already at work anyway. And, and we did our uh, food break and then deep space nine break for a while and had movies there. And uh, you know, they had really nice equipment um, sound systems and, and that sort of stuff, which I think they just carried over and made better in the, when they had their own building that they could do whatever they wanted. So. No, no doubt. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's funny that you, it's a kind of a paranoid, a rule to actually have to have a management approval of an ex-employee if they're kind of worried that you're coming back very bitter about the situation <laughs> yeah i don't know i wasn't even that bitter i mean it was just it was it was taking its toll and it was just like yeah i i know you guys want to build games this way and i, I just don't want to anymore um i wasn't super bitter i you know there, it was just just the way it was and mm. uh yeah so I, I don't know they were a little bit 
corporate. I mean, the one, the one, one awakening point, like uh, it was sort of early on in my career. And the first time I experienced it was I, uh, I was actually, we were between games like that game I was on had been canceled. And even like, like we were casting around trying to figure out what we we're going to do before we we're going to do basketball. And this guy, this guy, uh, fantastic guy, Chris Taylor, he's gone on to do some of his own games that say a Chris Taylor game, which was one of his goals. He succeeded at that, uh, brought this game by called Dune 2. And he's like, hey, play this. It's really cool. It was kind of a new, the, that was the beginning of the real-time strategy genre that went on for a while. Like, maybe we want to make play this game. And I was kind of, didn't have much to do, so I'm playing this game and it's really great. And then in the cube across from me, I think at that time they were also working on uh, some educational games like Scooter's Magic Castle. There were some people. And HR came grab the guy in the queue right across from me while I'm playing this game and I actually don't really have, you know, a game that I'm working on right now. Took him away and he never came back. Right. That was my first experience with layoffs. Right. And I'm like, and you know, I'm like, what just happened? Right. And I'm, I'm, I actually don't have much to do, but it turns out, you know, I, I was going in, in the direction that they wanted. So eventually we got the Hitman team and we started doing NBA, but that was, that was eye opening. It was kind of like, you know, maybe I should be more mercenary, you know, kind of like the company will if they don't need you let you go so maybe mm. if you want to do something different you should also not feel too bad right so it's it, from the sounds of it and talking to people from back then and also in the industry now it's it, unfortunately not a lot has changed it's uh and there's been a lot of push from people like i guess like a jim sterling who does his uh content and and uh, critiques the industry and and games and everything that's that's real kind of push for Better, better treatment of, of developers and, and programmers and so forth that uh, getting, getting laid off when the project comes to an end and, and not having that job security and of course the, the crunch and everything it's uh, it's something that obviously the industry and games have come a long way but perhaps something the culture has, has probably changed a little bit from what i've heard but at the same time uh, may, maybe uh, has a ways to go yeah and I've, I've done i mean i've done a lot of thinking right it was like even at the time i think i i was questioning like do we do we really need to do this and i think it's just like you have those like basically you know these drop dead deadlines that you know you'll make a lot of money or you won't make a lot of money and you have to meet them and and it was weird because you never really knew where the pressure was coming from and but there was a lot of pressure to to do the hours right and it and we like we we even as a team we kind of decided how would we try this we try you know, let's work all the time, Monday to Friday. I mean, like you get up, you go to work, you work as much as you can, you go to sleep, but you take Saturday and Sunday off and you kind of feel a bit human again when you come back in on Monday and you're actually a little bit rested and, and, and probably more productive. And we, we got away with that for a while, but eventually they called us into a meeting and said, Hey guys, you got to start working Saturdays and Sundays too. Mm. Like, that's just what we want. Um, you know, and, and it was kind of, it was too bad because, there's one, there's one thing motivating yourself to do these extra hours because you've got a goal and you're, and then there's being told to work the extra hours. I think early on it started off as you motivate yourself because you're, you're excited about trying to get some stuff done. Uh, and then it just became an ingrained and in, in that's, this is how we make games and this is how we get things done. But I mean, you know, if you have these really hard deadlines, the thing is like, you're, you're not necessarily like you're kind of tired all the time and there's kind of weird things that happen when you're tired. I can tell you another story in a second, but, but like where you get unreasonably angry sometimes and like you're just so exhausted and stressed and and stuff. And it's like, are you are you really that productive? It feels like you're working hard because you're because 
because you're, you know, so tired and it's hard, but are you really getting lines of code out that are clever lines of code that solve a problem in a unique way? Or are you just like doing whatever it takes to try and get something done and which would be better? But if you have a deadline and you can't argue, I mean, they, they were profitable and successful. So maybe that is what needed to happen. Um, there, yeah, there's one story, like I remember one guy told me about, he was just throwing a ball at a wall and then all of a sudden he was get he was just angry about nailing that wall with the ball. It's the sort of headspace you sometimes get into when you're into these like great overtime periods. And there was there was an incident with Dom, actually with Dom and myself, and it was kind of crazy and not normal for me, but he was kinda of, we we had cubes side by side and and he was messing around with his panels on his cube. I kind of stuck my fingers through to be a joke, and he slammed the panel and wanted catching one of my fingers Ooh. my instant response was to step back i just kicked the panel and he's like oh i walk around and he's caught his monitor which is behind the panel that i had kicked off his desk by kicking the panel hitting the monitor and stuff like that happens and it's like wow where did that come from but mm. you know it's just the sort of stuff when you're in the tension and stress and stuff like that that can happen right I mean, they, they say the pressure creates diamonds, and obviously that, maybe that worked out for the game. In the, it sounds awfully stressful to to go through to give us a uh, a fun basketball game. Yeah, exactly. And I, like, yeah, you, yeah. So I was trying to decide whether whether you needed to do that or not, but it worked for them at the time. So you, me, can't really argue. And then you know, you're still free to make your decision to to not do that if you want, which is what I ultimately did at some point. And I think Darren said he did a similar thing as well, right? That you just you know, it's a free country, so uh, if you if you don't like it, you can uh, leave, right? So, yeah, seek other right opportunities. Enough. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It, uh, um, and and they, obviously, obviously, that's what you did after uh, was it NBA Live '98. Was that your your last one? That was my last game. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I quit. I quit two weeks before I got married. I think one of my one of my reasonings was that you know I, I want to see my kids grow up, which I've successfully completed yep. <laughs> to a certain extent. I've got a twenty year old and two eighteen year olds. And uh, I actually was there with them, and that was that was a, a great thing. I was I was happy to do that. It's like I just thought I don't want to, you know, have this lifestyle where I don't actually see, get to know, be involved with my kids and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it was it was a good decision for me. It was a good experience to like you learn to code and you learn to code fast and you learn to, you know, do that sort of stuff. But uh, it was a good experience. Got me my start. It was my first job, and then I you know, parlay that into other jobs. And so that, that, enough, right? that does seem to be a recurring theme from everyone I talk to is that it's uh, a lot of fun, obviously, is and the fun times that you recalled of both working on the game itself and the working with the people and the, and the camaraderie and the joking around. But at the same time, the, the lifestyle, not very compatible with uh, having a family and, and being married, you know, the, when you're single and without kids or whatever, or just dating and don't have kids, you can uh, take that time and, and have all those late nights in the office and, and everything. But then it's, uh, it becomes much harder to do when you've got uh, other responsibilities that uh, perhaps start to mean a little bit more to you than uh, working on a, a virtual basketball game. Yeah. And even my girlfriend at the time and then my fiance eventually was like, what, what are you doing? Why did they make you do this? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, I have no, no good answer for you. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of funny. Cause I was like, also thinking about like, you're kind of, you drive in on like Sundays and there's people that are enjoying their Sunday and stuff and you're going to work. And I was kind of like, is anybody, going to care about this basketball game and even like two or three years like some of my self-talk or whatever like 
you know, and then ironically, here I am 25 years later talking to you about the basketball game. Mm. So it's kind of funny, but, you know, some of it's backed up, like a lot of sports games. Like if you go to, if I'm a bit into retro games as well, and if you go to the retro gaming stores, a lot of the cheap games are just sports games, right? Yeah. But, uh, but, but you guys, I mean, probably it's you guys, you guys that actually kept it interesting and made it interesting and also took that passion and translated into other games and kept, kept things going all these years. So, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to, that, that people are still interested in this. I, and I had initially thought, you know, no one's going to care even after a couple years about this game game. Right. But, uh, but so it's kind of ironic and, and, and delightful in some ways that, that you're, there's people that are still interested in what happened back then and how we, how we made a basketball game. I mean, I, obviously, I do, I've still played basketball games and cover them for the site, but I do have that nostalgia, that affinity for the games I grew up with, and it's it's one of those things that, I mean, I, I remember games again. You know, you bring up Descent and Doom and Quake and, and games like that, and I can bring up you know Super Mario Brothers and uh, Donkey Kong Country and Pipe vs. Space Mutants because that's my running gag on the show at the moment. Uh, you you do remember the, the, the games, and they do have that impact on you for. Uh, shaping childhood adolescence etc so it, it gets to a point where i think uh, that nostalgia hits everybody that you look back fondly on those those games and i think there's a quote from somebody i forget who it is but it's uh, mad magazine it was funniest when you first started reading it kind of you always have that nostalgia <laughs> for you know and and obviously games have come a long way and 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 not to get into it as we're celebrating the history of uh, of nba live but certainly more more recent games have had their issues and uh, microtransactions are, are a big thing these days, and that's something obviously that wasn't in the uh, in the cards back then, except for arcade games. The, the original microtransactions putting quarters into the slots, um, so that the, the culture has changed quite a bit with the, with the design concepts and the the suits getting their hands on the games and, and seeing how they can just be, become uh, uh, ATMs basically. So not to get too cynical about it, of course, um, I'll leave that for another show. But uh, that, that's why I think there is that great nostalgia about these old games that uh, were, really was just about the, the basketball, that, that experience, and you know, talking to you guys and, uh, and having you mention that it was all about just making the best games possible, the most fun games. And, it, and it's why I think they do, that they're not as disposable as some of the recent games that it's all about, the online experience and, and, and so forth. It's, uh, it's why they do continue to resonate and why they really made that impact on us because it, it was about getting the the best game possible the best virtual uh, representation of basketball possible it wasn't about uh, milking us for more money or anything like that so i think that's why it uh, we, we do continue to care about these games years, years later because they had such a positive uh, impact on us and it's uh, yeah which is why it's been cool to do this uh, the retrospectives and everything for the 25th anniversary which is uh, going into its second year uh, 25th anniversary of the pc version so i'm you know I'm, <laughs> that's that's why i'm continuing into the second year and it's uh, through all the ups and downs obviously life has been Back in its early days, it was uh, it was the game, as I said. So it's it's really cool to get those insights uh, into it. Uh, have you still been in gaming since then, or have you just focused more on the uh, corporate and security and things like that? Yeah, not not in not in the gaming space. Like, well, so I'm still a gamer, and then I'm always surprised because I think I asked Rod and Brian, like, what do you guys play these days? And they don't play much. I'm still actually a big time gamer into games. I even actually am into retro games as well. Uh, not even from my childhood necessarily like uh, you know I own all the Nintendo consoles both handheld and portable mm. well almost all of them except for maybe some variations but I can play just about any games and I 
uh, you know, that's sort of my hobby right now. And, and I even play modern games like I played Jedi Knight Fallen Order on PS4 just recently and then had a great time. Um, you know, so so I, I remained a gamer and a lot of people people didn't. Uh, but then, you know, my job is, has just been mostly my job. Like, I think the, the next, the job I got after that, where I stayed on for quite, quite like about 12 years after EA, uh, it was a great company. They had a really great culture and, uh, it, but it was just, you know, doing uh, front end UI for, uh, uh, pr- producing printing plates, um, you know, where you, you would, uh. Yeah, so they said they're, they're, they made giant laser printers for printing plates, and I did the, a lot of the front-end work, which was still, it was interesting. And then I wound up working in uh, Embedded, where the company's first thing they did was they made actually a silicon chip, so I got to learn a little bit about what a silicon company is like, but I mostly work with the firmware teams there that built built firmware around the chip. And then I wound up working for a security company for a couple of years, and now I'm at a company that does... Uh, large uh, basically allows large uh companies like power companies to manage their assets and do optimization on how they spend their money to maintain their assets so it's all it's been all over the place i think i think what it comes down to is that actually what i care about more is having interesting problems to solve than you know just in a particular industry it's I, i just have fun learning and trying to figure out how you can take code and make it solve solve problems right uh, definitely, definitely makes sense, and it's an interesting career path to uh, to take into, uh, you know, uh, talking to Darren and mentioning that he was kind of in doing that kind of stuff first, and then ended up uh, going into gaming. It's uh, it's it's strange the way the you know the the paths that we take in life. Yeah, and I, and I think actually, I mean, his the fact that he actually had other experience was it, it show it actually helped the game too, right? Like he definitely had the, he did you know champion the DBFs and uh, you know. The other thing I, I'm, the other thing I remember, I think he mentioned it a bit, but you know, I was, it was kind of like cool for the time. It's like the artist would always ask you to move things over a few pixels. He's like, "Hey, I'm going to write code that lets them do all the moving, and I don't have to do it." That was sort of the initial genesis and he would, of, of that idea, and he would, I'm like, "That's a great idea." He's like, "Yeah, now I don't have to move anything, and the artist they could just hit this control key and they could move all the stuff they wanted. They could save it out, out to a file, file, and save the positions and." I don't have to do any work anymore. And he would, he was clever with things like that as well. So um, necessity is the uh, mother of invention, as they say. So yeah, it's also cool to hear that you are still into games, that it it didn't burn you out on the, on, on on gaming as a hobby, working behind the scenes. You know, they talk about seeing how the, uh, seeing how the sausage is made. I think that, uh, that came up in the group chat, that, uh, that um, Maxim and uh, (laughs) yes, that that it didn't turn you off games altogether. Perhaps, uh, you got in there and had that great experience and were able to appreciate game design, but then have been able to, uh, to move on to other things while still enjoying gaming. Yeah. And there's often like all the companies have had a bit of a gaming culture. Like we did, I mean, I, at the next company I did, I think we played quake two and quake three, and then eventually like unreal tournament 2004. And we would do, you know, in the evenings do like, you know, have, have some battles and stuff like that. So there's always been, and even at the, you know, it, I think I even gone at it at, the next company I did after that, we played a lot of Battlefield, starting with Bad Company 2, Battlefield 3, Battlefield 4, and then we started to, it was actually weird for me, because we, we would normally do it at work, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, yeah, you can do it from your home now. I'm like, oh, yeah, right? It was kind of like, you could, so they, we would join later and play Battlefield in the evenings and, and uh, be on Discord, and, and you could trash talk and have fun, and it was a good way to, good way to bond with people, and, 
and fun. And then, you know, absolutely, um, yeah. I did a lot of, did a lot of Nintendo gaming. I came to have a really good appreciation for Nintendo and sort of the kind of quality they built into their games. Um, mostly because it was the thing I, things I could game with with the kids. And uh, I actually didn't, I was a little bit too uh, old for Nintendo by the time we got to EA, it was it was all like I did. I was sort of an Apple Apple gamer, yep. and Atari Atari Apple gamer, and then I probably switched to PC games a bit at EA. I was into like LucasArts and stuff like that. They had a free or they had a, a company store, and it wasn't just. They also would, were doing publishing for companies like Origin Systems and that sort of stuff. So you know, I could pick up the Ultimas either for free. Again, initially you could get you had ten points to spend, and a PC game was one point, and a cartridge game was two points, and you had that every year, so you get like free games and stuff like that. Uh, when you started at EA, they gave you a Sega Genesis. So again, I sort of missed Nintendo that way, but I was into all the Sonics. I played all the Sonics through, and uh, that sort of stuff. So there's there's lots of gaming at work. You know, you, you mentioned, of course, the. The systems that people have, the, the engines rather, that people have to work with now when they're making games. Uh, have you ever been tempted to to dive in with a, like an indie game or just making something for your own enjoyment at all? Yeah, I've thought, thought about it for a long time. It's I I find, find though that when you're coding, well, I mean, working hours a day, and if you're putting your tough, and I did take on, I took on a C plus plus contract at one point, and it was like, it's it's just it's hard to you know, something that do something that might be successful and spend your spare time doing that when you have a family, um, you know, and you've coded all day already to come home and code some more. Mm. I mean, unless you had a really good idea or some certainty for success, like I, even during the early days of iOS, I wound up taking like a community college or a technical college course to learn that. And I thought about it a bit, uh, but never, you know, the hours that you have to spend, I think even the guy in the course said, really to get a polished app that you'll have a chance of selling, you'd probably have to spend, you know, three months to six months. And then even then, you probably, I think one guy said, if you want to make a middle class income, you're probably going to have to about have about four or five apps and probably revisit them and remarket them. And maybe you'll generate a middle class income at, at some point. And so it's kind of like, well, or I can just focus on developing my career and getting good and, you know, taking, doing the extra time to get better. You know, it's like, well, it's, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough choice. Like I always, I love games. I'd like to do a game, but then, you know, the, if you want, if you're just doing it for fun, you can just throw something together. But if you're going to like try and make something commercial, it's a big, big commitment. Um, yeah. Sometimes uh, years in the making, uh, we've had, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard any of the interviews, but we've had, uh, Josh and Dave from Nemo Gamo, uh, indie developer who made basketball classics in the style of like Double Dribble and those games from the early uh, 90s. Uh, it's a fantastic retro game. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, it's available on Steam. Uh, it's a, a passion project of theirs. It's really turned out well. And I picked up Steam with the retro uh, gaming community. And uh, But yeah, it's uh, years of, of hard work to make that come to fruition, but it's uh, it's been worth it. But you really have to be uh, passionate about making that happen, obviously. Yeah, and I guess if I had someone to collaborate with, I don't know, like, it, uh, I, you always think about it, like, it'd be fun to just do something you wanted, and if you had a good idea, but, but uh, you know, again, if you're coding all day long, and it's, it's, you have to be very motivated, and, you know, 
sacrifice a bit. Mm, so no, I think no I doubt. said I was, yeah, yeah. I was doing I was doing a C plus plus contract on the side, and that was very very draining. Um, and I kind of decided maybe that's that's not something that I want to pursue. Although if you're doing something yourself that's more fun, it might be interesting. But but uh, hey, you you know part of a, a great run of uh, NBA live games, so you've always got that on the on the resume, and you know the always got the uh, that spiraling ball, which always looks so nice. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that looks. I still leave EA on my resume, but it's it's so long. People are like sometimes ask me, "Do you even remember?" It's like, yeah, no, I still remember. I've got a good memory, right? But but like, is this is it even is it even relevant anymore? I, I don't know. Like all that experience, I'd have to probably relearn it. I did I did poke around at the Unity engine a little bit just for fun, uh, and that like it's like wow, it's almost easy now to create some of the more basic games. Um, if you if you want to, so maybe maybe I'll do something one day. But so before I uh, you know, let you go, and you've been very generous with your time, and appreciate you talking to me today. Um, just if I can pick your brain about a couple of things that I've found poking around in the exe file over the years, just to see if you do remember them. Um, there's there's a reference to, in a couple of uh, places in the NBA Live '96 exe uh, art pointers to the Raptors, which uh, identify them. And this is only in the code; it's not in the game. But uh, as the Craptors. Would that have been? And I think I brought it up with Rod as well. Would that have been a cross-country rivalry with uh, with Toronto there? Yeah, I don't know. There's always there's always like so Vancouver and Toronto. Tr- Vancouver is kind of like the California of Canada, except not as warm, but warmer than the rest of Canada. Um, so there's all, and they're kind of east. They're a little more buttoned down. They'll wear suits to work and stuff like that. So there's always a little bit of you know them and us. So it wouldn't surprise me at all, you know, that we would take it to the, you know rivalry with the teams i don't know yeah i don't know who would have done that though because you get in a lot of trouble if anyone ever saw that so um it's yeah it's interesting yeah. It's, it's just one of those things i found poking around i thought that's that's got to be intentional because it's only a couple of references to it so it might have just skimmed past uh qa it might have skimmed past the nba's notice on that one but it's uh it's always made me laugh when i've looked at that uh in the in the uh in the text strings yeah, well, if they don't use it, if they didn't go in the source code, if it's in the source code only and it doesn't show up in the game, then I don't I don't know if the NBA gets to go over source code or has people that could look at source code. Um, it's, so it's, it it's, way down. Like it, it's way down in the XE file, so it's probably, yeah, something that just slipped under the radar. It's pretty, pretty funny. but um, And the, the other one that I've noticed somewhere in there that's unused in-game, but it's it's there with all the positions, power forward, center, etc., is uh, someone slipped in bench warmer as a position so <laughs> obviously a gag at some point maybe some position maybe some players were uh, assigned that at, uh, as, as a position at some point in a joking way yeah and i don't know if they ever do this i remember hearing rumors too that if you got if you didn't make the playoffs in your pretend season they would actually let you play a golf game afterwards because a lot of the players at the time when they were done if they didn't make the playoffs they would just go and work on their golf game and that was that was the joke i don't know if anyone ever did that like a sort of secret hidden game of golf that you could play that you would only access if you you know busted out of the playoffs hmm. there is a hidden golf game in i think 95 if you enter as hmm. the, if you enter the uh reflog which is golf or backwards as your username when the user log on the uh, on, only on the genesis version it will actually unlock a, a small version of one of the uh, uh golf games that somebody in the studio was i believe was working on at the time right yeah i think the producer that came from california actually actually was was doing golf games before he came here and got the NBA license. And I think he was working on them both at the same time for a while. 
with some with a team in California and a team here before he fully committed himself to here yeah, in in the transition period. And again, something you just don't see in games today. It's, it's again, the, the, the wild west of, of video game development in the 90s, being able to slip those things in. Just, uh, yeah, you just, you just don't see it these days. Yeah, I think a lot of them are like, well, if you if you had time to do that, why don't you ten, spend your time yeah. making the game better, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. kind of like, it's kind of like a point A, point B thinking, right? But like, you know, if it gives people more ownership and passion over the game, you're probably still you're going to get a better game if you let them do these things than if you just say well you should have done a feature right like you know it's kind of it's the fact that the people had the passion they had the ownership they they were that they did things like this and that's what you want to generate right if you have a team that's working on stuff you don't want to be less like only do things that aren't fun right like yeah i mean you go back to the I think the early Atari games where they weren't even even allowed to put credits in, they couldn't put their name on the game. So that's that's I think where some of the first Easter eggs came from, if, if I'm not mistaken. That uh, well, uh, I, rem- I remember yeah. find, finding that Easter egg, and that was pre-internet, and I, mm. I think it was just word of mouth, and, and I remember finding that, and it was like the coolest thing ever, right? It was like a there was a secret micro dot in a maze on a, in the Black Castle. You had to use a bridge to go through a part of the maze you couldn't normally get to, and all of a sudden you'd get this micro dot and you take it to some section of the map i think it's it's featured in ready player one now but but i remember doing this as a kid and and that lets you walk through a wall and then there's a voila there's this you know flashing credit for the guy that wrote wrote that uh wrote it, it was adventure right the adventure yeah on the target i remember finding that that was like the coolest thing right it's so, it was because again pre-internet as you say when you actually found something in those games uh, i remember finding the cheats menu in donkey kong country too just messing around on the on the, uh, the uh, game setup screen and just couldn't wait to get to school on, on Monday. You know, and obviously, you know, the, this is the start of the weekend, so you're not looking forward to school, <laughs> but yet you're still looking forward to getting to, you know, to, getting to school and being able to tell, oh, look, tell all your friends, oh, look what I found, you know, and this is how you do it. And uh, and actually it not being BS, it actually being a real code, not just something that you're making up to get your friends to mess around and try and find something that isn't there, to actually find a secret like that in the pre-internet days and, of course, these days. There's, there's a you are the king. Of, you're yeah. you're the coolest kid in your classroom for at least a few weeks, right? Yeah, at least a day. If nothing else, <laughs> you were the person who found it. Absolutely. And these days, there's a YouTube tutorial and everything to uh, to find all the hidden areas. You don't even have to play games these days. You can just look it up on YouTube, which uh, which is convenient in its own way. But it's uh, yeah, it's something very special about those early days of uh, of games that. And I think that is why retro games. And in fact, I'm quite sure that is why retro games have the appeal they do because they do have that that mystique i think that uh that modern games don't always have yeah and it's sort of i mean it's interesting to look at series like even some of the, like even mario kart on the n64 is still playable and fun right because something about the nintendo is just willing to put like this quality in their games and they take their time um you know that that other studios don't necessarily do and just to also appreciate the art at the time, like this N64 was the very beginning of 3D graphics, right, on a console and, and just what it sort of looked like. It's, I mean, it's interesting historically. It's, I, like, I like the packaging as well. It's just interesting for the styles at the time. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just, uh, in some ways, I, I think it's like, it's a little bit like collecting art, right? You're collecting sort of, oh, yeah. you know. I'll, yeah, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, both the games themselves and the, uh, instruction manuals back when big thick instruction manuals were a thing and you could read backstories and all kinds of tips and tricks it's uh there is definitely something special about those old games basketball or otherwise um uh, you mentioned lucas arts uh games 
Uh, now, you're talking about games like, uh, oh, what is it, uh, the one with Mark Hamill, the, uh, was it Wing Commander? Um, or were you talk, talking yes. about things like the, uh, your uh, Day of the Tentacle, Monkey Island uh, adventure games? Yeah. So Wing Commander actually was, I believe, Origin Systems. They did do uh, X-Wing and X-Wing versus TIE Fighter and games like that that were similar to Wing Commander. But they actually, ironically, Mark Hamill, I think, was in... If he was in Wing Commander, Wing Commander was done by Origin Systems, which was that Austin, Texas company by Richard Garriott, also known as Lord British of the Ultima series. But, uh, yeah, I was I loved the Monkey Island was like, you know, am- amazing and fun. So I, I like their adventure games. The Day of the Tentacle, Sam Max at the Road, uh, Indiana Jones Oof. and the Fate of Atlantis, all amazing. of those that that golden golden era of games. I mean, I think one of the most clever devices was the the insult sword fighting in monkey island where oh, you, yes you actually pick up all these insults that are really it's kind of standard and it's really clear the the insult and the comeback and you actually after fighting all these guys you learn all these comebacks but then you have to fight the master sword maker and you have to come up with a clever way to use all the comebacks that you have with their new insults and then they're actually even better comebacks when used against the new insult, but you have to figure it out. Like that was just uh, like brilliant game design, right? It absolutely was. And uh, it was just trial and error. And of course, walkthroughs and hint lines were a thing back then as well. This is all again, pre-internet love those games. So very, uh, very cool to hear that. I'm not the only one that loves those games because I don't feel it necessarily get as much love. I mean, there's a lot of people like a YouTuber pushing up roses who does some great retrospectives of those games. And of course the mm-hmm. Sierra ones as well, Legend Suit Larry, King's Quest, Space Quest, etc. I was also uh, played more, more on the Sierra side. It was more Larry that I played. Cause that was the, again, I'm 10, 11. <laughs> that's the, the naughty game that, uh, that somebody copied onto a disc for me and gave to me. So it's, uh, uh it's, it's, LucasArts is a bit more family friendly in that respect. Um, yeah, those insult sword fights, um, not sure. Have you played the the third one, uh, Curse of Monkey Island? It's it's got to be rhyming then. It's because the insults have got to rhyme. Yes, yeah, I've played that. I don't I don't remember the rhyming one. Although I remember they had a nice nicer interface for the Curse of Monkey Island with the the uh, context click wheel that you click on something and yep. then open up a wheel of things you could do. That was a nice innovation. And then they went 3D for Escape from Monkey Island. They did, yeah. In fact, I think. Was that the last one, or was there another 3D one? I can't remember. Uh, no, it was the last but one. Got, Tell, got... Telltale has made some. Telltale ended up making some like adventures. Oh, was it? Yeah, Adventures yeah. of Monkey Island. Yeah, that, they made the series there, but the original was the fourth. Escape was the fourth one. Because I think I got that from Brian Reisky, uh, who you may interview one day as a wedding present. Was I got Escape from Monkey Island or something like that? Oh, nice. So. Yeah. <laughs> the. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, the, I, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. If I go back and play the game, because they're all available on GOG now, good old games, which is really yes. cool. Um, and updated Steam, Steam had some remaster, remastered versions for a while, too. I think I have a few of them in my Steam library. Mm, but. Yeah, I, I got them all, um, those ones in Steam, and then the rest on, on GOG, I believe. But uh, the third one, you, because it was rhyming, you'd also have the, uh, joke, uh, the joke answers, which were wrong. And uh, and Dominico Armado, <laughs> who who does the voice of Guybrush, I think is just the perfect yeah. when, when he when he spoke. Um, and and, and if anybody who wants to hear about basketball gaming is tuned out now, but I'm just going ahead with this LucasArts so memories because <laughs> why not? But uh, yeah, he was such the perfect voice. I think of, of Guybrush when you when you heard him speak. Like, yeah, that's that's what Guybrush would sound like. And the same with uh, uh, I forget oh this spacing on the name at the moment, but who, who the voice of Legend Suit Larry was the same. Uh, just the perfect mm. voice for it, but uh, when that, when he was finally voiced, but 
Yeah, there's one that's I'll, I'll cut you like a boneless fillet, and one of the uh, joke answers when you don't know the, the right uh, response is support your local PTA and just starts losing it <laughs> like that. And uh, yeah, sc- yeah, now I'm starting yeah. to remember that's yeah, that's good. That's uh, like sc- taking the the mechanism and just giving it that little clever twist that makes it even more interesting, right? Absolutely. A little tip of the hat to the old one, but then a little bit of a new puzzle for you to adapt to. It's, and that, it's brilliant. they brought it back in Escape as well. Which uh, which I always enjoyed that the story of that was that everybody was losing the uh, being Australian obviously was losing their all their property to uh, Aussie Mandrel the Australian real estate uh, <laughs> man, uh, mogul uh, they were losing they were losing the insult games not because the insults were necessarily good but because they were very Australian they were just so incomprehensible to everybody else in the in the uh, Caribbean <laughs> islands there that they just what what is he saying and just and losing it there so as as an Australian that really you know, you, you'd think I might be ironically insulted about that, but no, I, I thought that was just a really great, like, yeah, that's, we we do have our own sayings and culture and everything that confuse other people from other countries. So it was a, it was a very good joke. Yeah, that's what, that is hilarious. It's good that you took it in stride. And, uh, oh, I mean, you know, Bart versus Australia is one of my favorite Simpsons episodes. So naturally you've got to, you got to have a sense of humor about, uh, about yourself to, uh, to some extent. And, you know, that's, that's where that's where Jock Steele came in, I suppose. You know, it's all we all have our, uh, <laughs> our pranks and our shot pot shots to uh, to to bear up. Sam and Max obviously love that game as well. It's uh, be, being very young playing that game was the word that uh, the game that taught me the words acumen and misanthrope and misanthropic. So uh, <laughs> you know, just and I think that's one of those great things about those games is that they didn't talk down to you. They just they figured that you'd either get it, you'd be the geeky enough to get all and smart enough to get all this stuff, or you'd learn about it. And that's what I thought was really cool. Yeah, have you tried Tumbleweed? Is it Tumbleweed Park? Basically, it's yeah. I, I haven't played it yet. I, I did buy it a little while ago. It's been it's on the list to, to play. No, Thimbleweed Park. Thimbleweed Park. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They always mess me up with that. Yeah, yeah. I played it partway through. I didn't finish it, but yeah, it was good. It had a lot of tip of the hats to the old old games. Maniac Mansion like and Day of the Tentacle. Absolutely. It's uh, yeah and. Uh, Full Throttle is another one. Obviously, that's 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 another one I like. That that was a bit later on that one. Yeah, that one was really short though. I was I was a little sad that it was over so soon. It seemed like that that, that having to kick the uh, the meter. I'm sure you probably remember that having to kick it at the right time when the meters were under the uh, when, when you're when you're underneath the the factory, you got to kick the wall at the right time to open up the secret door. Was uh, yeah, that's a frustrating that that and the the turtle puzzle from the dig are those those puzzles that every, everyone you see yeah. that talks about those old games are like, oh, that one, stuck on it for ages. <laughs> yeah, there were some that would just be like annoying, you'd be like going back and forth and then when you found it, if it's they were usually fair and it's like, yeah, I should have got that and you're satisfying. If they were completely out of the blue, you get a bit upset, but it's so always it's like, a... yeah, I could have figured that out if I had, yeah, right. Those uh, Roberta Williams classic moon logic puzzles that we saw a lot in Sierra as well and of course, save early and often because... <laughs> When you can die in those games, you will die early and often. So, <laughs> yeah, that was that was LucasArts' claim to fame that you will never get punished for exploring. We will never kill you in our game. Yeah, they actually sold it on that. I actually went down to like a, a internet rabbit hole a little bit because I was like, what happened to Ken Williams and Roberta Williams? Like, I watched a little bit of Metal Jesus Rocks. Um, and I actually even met him at the Retro Gaming Expo in Portland last last year, last October, which may or may not be happening this year. But, but. Um, 
so I was thinking a little bit. He was talking. He he used to work at Sierra, so he talks about like whatever happened. So you know, Ken has a blog. They actually like ha- live on a sailing boat a good chunk of their time, and he, Ken has a blog about going say, boating and stuff like that. And he's building. They had some Grand Banks schooner, but now they've sold it, and they're designing one that can do the rivers uh, you know the mississippi river that has to be a narrow draft and he's geeking out designing his sailboat with all the money they got from selling sierra but <laughs> i find i sometimes go down rabbit holes like that because it's, it's kind of interesting it's like oh where are they oh well ken has a blog let's read his blog for a bit and you, know, you kind of get amused or it's interesting to see what, what happens to these people i mean it's, yeah, it speaks to our interest in old games and i guess the people who made them which is again why i reached out to, to you guys to uh to talk about these things because it's yeah the games we grew up with, they have make that impact on us, as I said, and to be able to hear those inside stories and, and things and, you know, what, what's, you know, where are they now kind of thing. It's uh yeah, it, it is interesting. And you do, as you say, you can go down that rabbit hole very, uh, you can tumble down very quickly, very easily. <laughs> so before we, we wrap up here, uh, anything else you can tell us about the, uh, working on the games or, you know, a, a funny story to end on if you've got, uh, if you want to throw someone under the bus, I suppose, <laughs> or, or yourself, you know, it's, it's, it's up to you. I mean, other people are probably going to rebut things. So it's, uh, but you get the, you get the last word on this one. So I, I can promise you that. Well, I, I have a couple of edgy, weird stories, but I don't know how funny they are. I'm just debating whether to, okay, well, this one's sort of funny. That kind of speaks to the culture, but basically, apparently there is an, there's a hotel actually across the street from our original original building. And an amorous couple apparently took their ammer out onto the balcony of the hotel, which someone noticed and then put over the intercom. And everybody ran out to go watch them. <laughs> and one of the artists yelled, you go! <laughs> which caught their attention and made them, you know, take their ammer back inside the hotel room. So... <laughs> <laughs> so. That that's that's not an Easter egg. That that photo, there's no photo that shows up somewhere in the in one of the. Games. No, no. I don't know if anyone snapped a photo, but but a lot of people ran out in the balcony. And yeah, it was kind of that's sort of kind of the kind of what happened. Kind of... I, I mean, this is pre-internet once again, so you, we you, we took what we could get. So, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for for joining us today and uh, and sharing those stories about the early days of live, the, the ones that uh, I and many other old timers in the community. I say old timers, we're in our mid 30s well you know that's uh, <laughs> these days but it's, it's getting to that point where we're starting to feel like grumpy old men and back in my day no microtransactions and games were fun and you kids have it so good you but, don't even know what it was like uh, actually sometimes i think sometimes we had it better when it comes to the microtransactions but <laughs> we actually yeah yeah that's that's crazy it's um, they're doing that i think ea became the most hated company for a while for for some microtransactions in some game worst company in america for two years running they, they got that uh yeah, yeah. Which, which always blew my mind a bit because i think there's probably banks and insurance companies that were more of a threat or more of a problematic to the general population than a video game developer but it's uh that's how seriously we take our video games andrew it's uh that's yeah, seri- right? serious business <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, well, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to interview me. It's it's great that people are still interested. Uh, I mean, I think it's starting. To, uh, it's interesting that you're now a part of video game history, and, and that that uh, that uh, people actually still care so and and, and are are interested. It's great. Absolutely. You know, yeah. No, you're welcome. Great to have you on the show, and uh, good luck in your next Descent game. Yes, I haven't played Descent for a while, but maybe I should practice up in Domin Isle. Give it another whirl or sometime. <laughs> to get get it on the uh, on the party chat and uh, yeah, <laughs> talk some yeah. more trash. <laughs> exactly. 
Thank you once again to Andrew for those insights and stories, not to mention the added detour on memory lane as we talk about those classic LucasArts games. Always fun to revisit those as well. We've got plenty more planned for the 25th anniversary of NBA Live, by the way, so look out for more interviews, retrospectives, and other features coming very soon. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you like the sound of a podcast about basketball gaming, then good news, the NLC podcast comes out every week, Sunday evenings Australian time. You can find us on various podcatching apps, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you're tuning in on one of those platforms, by all means, feel free to leave us a review, hopefully a positive one, as that's good for our egos and also our visibility. You can also stream the show on the NLC itself, where I invite you to leave a comment on the front page post or take the discussion to the NLC forum if you like. We'd love to hear from you, and we're also open to topic suggestions, so please let us know. But as long as you're tuning in and enjoying the show, that's the main thing. You can also connect with us on social media. On Twitter and Facebook, we are the NLSC. You can also find me personally on Twitter at AndrewNLSC. On Instagram, we are NLSC Basketball. On YouTube, we are NBA Live Series Center. And of course, keep it locked to the NLSC itself, nba-live.com for everything we do for basketball video games. But yes, that's all for this week, so thank you once again for tuning in. Until next time, I've been Andrew. Go get buckets, everyone. <laughs>